0: What would you like the power to
1: do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the new books network. Hello everyone. And welcome back to the academic life, a podcast channel on new books network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're do- joined by Dr. Jessica Ware, Associate Curator of Invertebrate Zoology at the American Museum of Natural History and the author of A Day in the Life, Bugs. Welcome to the show, Jessica.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to learn about your job and about your book. Before we dive into either of those, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, So I
0: am a curator at the American Museum of Natural History, and I study insect evolution. In particular, I'm really interested in dragonflies and damselflies, but I also work on termites and cockroaches, and I have graduate students and postdocs that work on true bugs and bees and twisted wing parasite. So we work on a lot of different types of insects. Um, I'm an identical twin and a mom of two uh, kids who are teenagers. Um, and I really think that uh, having kids is a great way to be an entomologist because they're very good at
1: catching insects. What got you interested in this career?
0: I think that the idea that you could be curious for your job was something that was always very exciting to me. Um, I know my parents, uh, no one in my family was a scientist. Most of my family were working class jobs. And it seemed like they didn't really enjoy the experience of their days. Um, And I always was kind of fascinated by science. And I really liked natural history and being outside. Um, And so when I went to university and I took courses in science and eventually took entomology, um, I thought, uh, you know, this, I, I just actually couldn't believe that this was a job that you could be paid a job uh, where you could be paid to study uh, the questions that you were most interested in um, and once I you know went into academia I've just loved every minute of it
1: who was it that told you that this could be a job
0: well I uh, was supporting myself through, un- through university. And I was a work-study student since I had student loans. Um, and one of the work-study jobs I had was with uh, a woman named Diane Shavastava at University of British Columbia. And I, can, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in her office and she said, so you should think about going to graduate school. You seem like you're really interested in this. Graduate school, I said, what is that? And she looked like surprised. And she explained to me That there was such a thing as graduate school, that you could get a PhD, and that if you got a PhD, you could get a job in academia. She described what academia was. She explained that if you were, like, I had had professors, of course, but they were all um, older white people who I thought somehow had been chosen from the heavens to do this job. I didn't actually ever consider. The steps they had taken to take that job, because it just seemed like something that was so far out of the realm of what I would be able to do. So she explained to me, you know, in detail what graduate school was, what the tenure track was, what being a professor was. Um, and so from that point onwards, with uh, someone kind of encouraging me that this was something I could do, I really. Tried to learn as much as I could about it. Um, And uh, I've really tried to kind of, I guess I'm a good advocate for people to to consider academia because I think for many people who grew up the way that I did, uh, we just didn't even know that was an opportunity. But there's many, you know, avid, you know, curious people uh, who are kind of fascinated with particular organisms um, that would really probably be terrific in academia. They just don't know that it is a potential job.
1: Did you know there was going to be travel involved? Well, I sort of did, because when I
0: was doing this work-study job, um, Diane had a position for a research assistant to go to Costa Rica with her. She was studying uh, food webs in vermilion plant systems, uh, inside of which aquatic insects lay their eggs, and they have have aquatic communities. So I applied for that position, and I got it, um, and I went to Costa Rica with her for a couple of months. So I knew that there was uh, definitely fieldwork and travel were, were part of it, although I also You know, once I started meeting people who are in academia, I realized you could also do more bench work and and not travel, depending on what your interests were. Um, And in the beginning, of course, it seems very exciting, like you could travel everywhere. It'd be so wonderful. And then I became a parent when I was in um, graduate school and I realized, oh, this actually can be sort of challenging because, of course, um, with young uh, when my children were younger, it was. A little bit harder to travel and to, or to do the, the volume of traveling that I wanted to do to collect the specimens that I was interested in. Um, although when they got older, I was able to take them with me, which was wonderful.
1: How do they feel about family trips to study bugs? Uh, Well,
0: I mean, I'm sure they'd rather have a family trip to sit on the beach, but,
1: you know, at least getting to go
0: somewhere they enjoy. Uh, So they, I I can remember when they were about eight and 10 or eight and 11, I took them with me to South America, to Guyana uh, for a really long stay. So I took them out of school for three weeks and we stayed and they did, they made their own insect collection. They collected along with all of the scientists every day. We got up, we did their schoolwork before the, the day started. And that part, they didn't like that they had to get up before everybody to do their homework. Uh, but they really like the chance to, to be in another country to learn about another culture and to kind of experience, you know, a tropical life, which is very different from what we experience living in kind of tri-state New York, New Jersey area. Uh, so I think that they really benefited from it. And, and they, every time I'm going somewhere, they now are like, kind of curious, are we going to, I'd love to go. <laughs> but of course, as they get older, it's harder to pull them out of school.
1: Are there particular challenges in transporting the specimens back with you? And are they live specimens or are they dead specimens?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of challenges associated with the types of work that we do. We I only use um, uh, dead specimens, specimens that have been preserved. Um, and I'm usually interested in collecting things because we have a large collection here, which we use as kind of baseline data collections are really invaluable for kind of documenting, um, species and, you know, their distributions over time. Um, and I'm interested in collecting molecular data, um, you know, DNA from these specimens, um, as well as looking at their morphology or their appearance. And so preserving them in the field can be a challenge. Importantly, historically uh, the way that people used to do this type of work was not um, was not great <laughs> it was very kind of what they call neocolonialism you know where people would kind of swoop in take specimens from a country um, and leave and 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 that's not ideal because it doesn't actually help build capacity in the countries uh, that these insects inhabit and the people that are are there, don't have access to the same resources in a lot of cases, in part because of this kind of colonial legacy. So we really try to pay particular attention um, to working with our collaborators in the countries uh, where we're doing our field expeditions, um, and really creating partnerships and educational exchanges. Um, And what that means is that sometimes the collecting and the the specimen transfer and things like that takes longer, but I think ultimately it is is really beneficial, and we really try and um, have curated collections that are deposited in the countries uh, where we do our, 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 our work. Um, when we bring specimens back, of course, you have to have export and import permits, so that's a whole other, you know, you get to learn how to be an administrator and pile of paperwork, um, and my collaborator here at the American Museum, Ruth Salish, she does a lot of the... You know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife paperwork work and things like that, which is really helpful. Um, and then of course, you, they have the exciting part where you get to actually look at the specimens under the microscope um, to sequence their DNA. Sometimes you find that you have new species. Sometimes you find that the species that you're looking at actually have an interesting relationship that hadn't been before been found. Um, there's a lot of, I, I mean, specimens themselves hold sometimes millions of years worth of mystery in them. And so it's really, they're really, as I say, invaluable.
1: How did you become particularly fascinated with dragonflies? Oh, that's a good question how
0: I got fascinated with dragonflies. That's That's a tough one. I've thought about people have asked me that before and it is a tough one to answer because I vividly remember my childhood. We spent the majority of our time with our my maternal grandparents. They lived in northern Ontario and they lived on a lake, so we were around water all the time and dragonflies were features of our days. So they would land on the dock, they would land on us, uh, they would land on our canoe, they would land on our fishing pole. So I remember being fascinated by how many different kinds there were, the colors, um, and how beautiful they were. But I honestly don't remember ever thinking, I wish I could study these for my job. <laughs> like, I just didn't even know that was a thing. But I did, I did always have a kind of like a very positive visceral reaction when I saw dragonflies and damselflies. And then when I did this, as I mentioned, this, this work study job when I was an undergraduate, part of what I was hired to do was to actually look at fecal pellets. Ie poop <laughs> from damselflies that had been brought back from from Costa Rica to as part of this work they were doing to establish the food web. So I looked at these damselfly fecal pellets <laughs> to try and figure out what they had been eating. Um, and even then, I thought I still thought you know these these things are so cool. There's no way I could ever do this job because I'm sure everything neat has already been done. Um, When I went to Costa Rica, I saw dragonflies in the field. We were working with damselflies, mycistic is the genus that we were working with. And I thought like, oh, what a dream it must have been for the people that worked on this. Everything's already been done. I'm sure it must have been amazing. And it wasn't actually until I was in graduate school myself, I had enrolled in graduate school to study entomopathogenic nematodes to do pest management or biological control. Um, something practical to preserve, you know, food security for humans. <laughs> um, it was only when I was in graduate school that I that I realized. Uh, This isn't what I want to do. I think I actually want to study dragonflies. And I was really fortunate that Dr. Mike May, who was a really eminent uh, odonatologist that's what we call someone who studies dragonflies, um, and he was a really eminent person in the field, and he was there at at Rutgers. um, And I met with him, and I said, you know, I've always loved dragonflies, uh, and it's only just now I'm starting to think I'd like to work on them, but I'm pretty sure everything's already been done. Is that true? And he laughed and laughed and said, like, you know, Jessica, uh, there are so there are more unanswered questions than you could possibly imagine, and absolutely you should do this job. Uh, nothing really uh, would be more fun for you. It sounds like you you love dragonflies. You should go for it. And with his encouragement, you know I switched my my thesis topic, and I've kind of never looked back. So I think. Um, like I said, there were these like early plantings that perhaps the seeds were planted that dragonflies were cool from my childhood. But it wasn't until much, much later that I realized I could study them um, for my job.
1: I want to get to the book in a minute, but where's the furthest you've traveled to study a bug? Well, I mean, I've studied insects
0: all really pretty much all over the world, northern, southern, western, and eastern hemispheres. Um, I've sampled in Australia a few times. I've been fortunate enough to go uh, that that was those are pretty far <laughs> far distances. I've also sampled in you know in Namibia and South Africa. Those were also far distances to travel. We do a lot of work in my research program in Guyana, which is a country in South America. Um, we, we've really tried to sample at, in the Arctic as well. There's a lot of interesting dragonflies and damselflies that exist north of sixty six degrees, so north of the Arctic Circle. And those are very remote field trips, um, usually without you know cell service and you're, you're very isolated, but it's, it's very beautiful habitat up there. Um, so whether it's, you know, the Namib desert, which is a extreme dry to, you know, hot wet uh, climate of the rainforest in, in Guyana to, you know, this kind of Arctic uh, tundra, there's dragonflies in all of these spots, dragonflies and damselflies. So I've really been fortunate that I've been able to travel around to really capture an impression and evaluate uh, the rich biodiversity. That is really global.
1: It sounds like you enjoy adventure. When I asked you earlier, if you knew there'd be travel, um, I had gotten a sense from your book that you had done a tremendous amount of travel and it wouldn't have occurred to me in grad school when I was choosing, uh, my path to ask how many trips am I going to need to take? Um, how far am I going to need to go? And I ended up doing a lot of research trips, but, uh, I didn't need a passport. <laughs> um, and, and, um, just thinking about funding and grants and things for all of this amazing travel that you've done. Um, do you do a lot of photo photo documenting as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was uh, kind of
0: first interested in, in starting, you know, on this journey to being a field biologist, I, uh, I got a camera and I used to take my camera with me and, and take photos. And then um, over time, I kind of switched to just using, uh, you know, my iPhone to take photos when I'm in the field. Um, and there's lots of little neat adapters that you can add to your kind of snap onto your iPhone that actually can magnify um, to be able to take photos of, of insects pretty close up. Um, I think it's important to kind of for natural history purposes to document the environs that you're kind of sampling because often you don't realize until you're already working on the manuscript or analyzing your data that act you know something neat about or some feature about the habitat that actually kind of influences the conclusions that you're making so really documenting where you're doing your collecting can be really can be really important but then i think it's there's this other element of kind of um, you know changing people's perception of of what science is and of who a scientist looks like. So I think as kind of part of a visibility campaign, my lab, you know, we've really tried to, um, you know, share the things that we do, again, making it so that everybody knows this is a job that you can do. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like, um, what your abilities are. Everyone can be a field biologist. And so kind of using these photos kind of as almost an artistic practice, really, (laughs) to kind of show people what's possible Um, And to introduce people uh, to the fun parts of this job, Uh, we don't take a lot of photos of us doing the paperwork. (laughs) But for the fun parts of this job, I think that that can be, hopefully, you know, that might encourage us um, to be able to broaden participation um, in our field.
1: One thing you shared off there is that you also want people to know that anyone can write a book. Um, And I think that's... um, a very inspiring attitude because writing a book is is difficult. You wrote a picture book called "A Day in the Life Bugs." What do bees, ants, and dragonflies get up to all day? And it takes us through just like it sounds, hour by hour, through an entire day of the life of these different bugs. How did you launch on this new path to write a picture book?
0: I was really fortunate because I was um, contacted by someone from Neon Squid um because they were getting ready to launch a series of books and they wanted to have one that was on focus on insects um, and so we had you know a, a few introductory conversations about what that might look like um, and they asked me to provide a few they, they gave me some prompts and I you know provide a few writing samples um, and I, the editor with whom I worked, uh, was just terrific and really, uh, you know, encouraged me to, to express myself. I guess in a way that would be really approachable by, by readers of, of all ages. Um, and so, uh, after we, we had these initial conversations and, and we, we agreed that, that this is what the book would be, uh, the next step was to kind of figure out what the trajectory would be. And they really wanted; um, they already had this idea that they'd like to show. Um, kind of insect behavior and natural history across a time period, um, and so the fun part was kind of figuring out um, the drama, right? Like, like the the stories of the insects. Which insects would we feature? And then the the you know insects are there's more insects than there are anything else. You know, one and a half million described species probably. You know, several ten, maybe even ten million more species yet to be described. So there's a lot of potential insects one could feature. So that was kind of fun figuring out, um, you know, showing trying to pick insects that would ch- showcase the breadth of behaviors, um, gestalt, you know, appearances and 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 lifestyles of, of different insects. Um, and so what would happen was we would come up with a few different ideas. I would write for a bit and send it to them and they would edit it and send it back with with suggestions. Um, and we did this kind of iteratively uh, for each of the each of the chapters.
1: The illustrations are just beautiful. Often uh, picture book writers don't get to meet their illustrators. The different presses have different ways of handling these things. Did you submit photos to help your illustrator? Did you get to talk to your illustrator? How did, how did the collaboration come about for the illustrations of what you were describing in your words? So the, I
0: love the illustrations in this book. And, and, the, and the artist is just, just unbelievable. It's, it's, it's just stunning, uh, their work. Um, so I submitted we what we did was we kind of compiled photos of the tech ta- of the key taxa that we were going to be focusing on um, not always were they were we able to find photos of them kind of engaging in the behavior that was described in the story in that part of the story but we had like a variety of of photos that kind of showed the overall appearance and um, I didn't meet the of course this was largely written, um, during the pandemic. So I didn't meet the illustrator in person, but we went kind of back and forth with sketches. Um, I think the wings would be positioned more this way. I think the legs would be positioned more that way and so on. Um, kind of going back and forth, uh, in an iterative fashion, um, with just kind of rough sketches, uh, before, um, Kind of deciding once the layout of the, the 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 graphic was 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 sorted uh then they went to work on their amazing um their amazing art pieces because really each page i feel like is you could you could probably hang it up somewhere <laughs> it looks like you're know, like a piece of art uh, which is wonderful
1: you work at a museum it would seem like science communication is a big part of your job did that help you translate what you wanted to say onto the page because Writing simply and clearly is really difficult, particularly when as academics we're trained for the idea that we can have a couple hundred pages to say what we want to say.
0: Yeah, that is a tough one. I think in some ways um, I've always tried I can I can recall uh, when I was first in in graduate school and I had to give my first talk I had you know somebody said to me like you should talk to talk as if you're talking to someone that you know And in my mind, the person who I most close with was, is my maternal grandmother, my Nana. Um, and so I decided I would try and design this talk as if I was talking to her. She's not a scientist. She, you know, I, I think she finished high school, though she may not have. Uh, so she was really not starting with a lot of background knowledge. And I have used that as throughout my career. So for the, you know, since the early 2000s, I've been pitching all of the content that I that I do towards her. Uh, and she's in her 90s now. And so when I was writing this book and when I was writing these things, I tried to think of what my, stu- my I had children myself, you know, so I tried to think of the types of stories that they really liked uh, to read. But I also tried to imagine, I always keep that in the back of my mind, that if I was explaining this to someone like my Nana who really had no background knowledge, but who was invested and who was curious and who was interested in in nature, um, how would I, how would I say it? How would I phrase it? Um, and like I said, working with Sam, who's the editor, uh, he kind of went back and forth with me to, uh, you know, encourage me to, to reword things and to add more you know, drama in the middle of the pond scene when the dragonfly might get eaten by the frog and things like that, which was really very helpful, too. Um, but I think that that's, yeah, in, in terms of science communication, um, if you... Uh, you can have a lot of, of members of your audience that don't have a lot of background knowledge. That um, doesn't mean that you have to kind of lessen the amount of information and good content that you're giving them. You just need to explain it in a way where you clearly define the terminology. Don't get bogged down in jargon. Don't let jargon kind of obfuscate, like, kind of met, like cloud what your actual take-home message is. And the take-home message usually that my Nana is interested in is, you know, why is something doing what it's doing? That's the thing she always wants to know. Why does it do that? And in a lot of ways that's what my kids used to ask me when when we would read picture books. And so that's kind of the the thing that guided me as I as I did this writing.
1: And in the book, you have an extensive glossary of, of the words that you use. Um, and if it's a important vocabulary word, it's it's highlighted in bold so that readers can go to the glossary and, and look it up. But it is that nice play of the story and the drama with the keywords. But the keywords, don't, if you don't know them, you're not going to lose the plot. Yeah, and I think that's actually
0: a terrific feature of this se- this particular series that Neon Squid has. So, in the series that they have, uh, there's a, you know there's a, a few different books of books, some books on mammals and and what have you, um, and they they have these kind of features where you really are able to learn something because you do have this glossary. But like you said. The story itself tells itself, whether you skip over that word or not, you still will get the, the meaning and, and value of the story. Um, but then you also have the opportunity to learn and increase your vocabulary, which is great for kids because, I mean, although the, I think you the idea is that this book, a lot anyone could, would enjoy reading it, hopefully. Uh, but for, for kids, I certainly couldn't recall with my, with my own children, um, they really tried to absorb as much information as they could from the things that they read because it was kind of what was teaching them what they wanted to be and who they wanted to be.
1: You mentioned earlier that there's over a million described uh, insects and it, maybe 10 million more that are not yet described. How did you then choose the handful that got to go into this book? Yeah, that's an interesting question. How do we
0: choose the the insects that were going to be in the book? I mean, um, the editor had uh, a request for a couple of the like one of the moths uh, that was featured um, I really thought of course working on dragonflies and and spending a I spent a lot of time at water at freshwater because dragonflies and damselflies uh, they lay their eggs in fresh water and their juvenile stages their babies develop in fresh water before they emerge uh, as an adult so I spent a lot of time around the, the around freshwater whether it's rivers or ponds and I was keenly aware that birds are swooping down to to eat them. Frogs are jumping out of the water to catch them. But there are also these top predators in the insect realm, you know, flying around um, and catching other flies and other dragonflies. So I thought that would make a really great vignette to kind of include in the story was something that was related to dragonflies. And similarly with mayflies, we have a a section in there about mayflies. Mayflies, um, you know, do have a very unique lifestyle where they are, they emerge in these large kind of swarms uh, uh, and they live for very, very short periods of time where the adult's not feeding. So having some aquatic insects in there w- was interesting. But then, you know, working in New York city um, and, you know, I, I was a lot of my time in Toronto as a, as a child uh, or when I lived in Vancouver, in the urban centers, people often only think of, of insects kind of as pest insects, but there actually are a lot of different insects that live in urban settings. So we really wanted to show that as well, um, kind of highlight the city insects uh, that people might be encountering in their day to day um, as well as insects that have unique lifestyles. So we, there's, you know, a bit about ectoparasites and lice and fleas and, and insects that live on other insects and other mammals. And um, just to kind of, like I said, show the capture some of the breadth of what's out there um, across the different orders of insects.
1: And while it mostly takes us hour by hour, there are also some spreads that teach us about specific unique features of the insects that are in included in the book. And page 12 and 13 is this double page spread that's just about the many kinds and uses of wings. I found that section really fascinating. I did not know much about wings at all, let alone all these varieties and the different ways that they could move. Are those things that you've observed both in the wild and under your microscope, what inspired you to give us all this extra knowledge about wings? Well, I think what's neat about wings is that,
0: um, you know, before birds, before bats, before pterosaurs, there was nothing in the sky. And I like, I kind of like imagining that, like a sky that was completely empty. And then the first things to fly were insects. Um, and probably those insects looked a little bit like a dragonfly or a damselfly. We think, um, and so this this rate the reason why we think insects one of the drivers that might explain why insects are so successful, why there are so many species, is their ability to fly. Um, and flight is something that is a key part of the story for many many insects. Um, and so, I think featuring wings and talking about wings is important. Um, and we have looked to insect flight for many of the innovations that humans have done. And we we often um, make references to insect um, flight and insect wings for for inspiration for different bio-inspired materials or for you know design of of things that we want to have fly or little mini robots and things like that. So encouraging people to really look at wings look at the breadth of you know of wings that are out there there are wings that look like dragonflies that are beautiful kind of stained glass like features that are actually very rigid um when corrugated uh to to wings that have you know velvety scales like what you might find in some of the moths or butterflies um to wings that are used for a purpose to kind of rub against each other to make a noise or a sound um you know there's there's a, there's a lot of um, different uh, uses of wings um, beyond just, you know, propelling an organism into the sky um, and maintaining lift. Uh, and so it was exciting to kind of show that, <laughs> to, to showcase this, this interesting aspect. It's, I think wings are something that unites entomology and engineering and chemistry and physics. It's something that is a crossover that kind of unites multiple disciplines, as well as, you know, artistic disciplines, of course, Insect wings are have been used uh, as objects of beauty in artwork for many, many centuries.
1: The honeybees in the book, we meet at 10 a.m., and then we catch up with them again at 7 p.m. I love that we got to see them at two very different points in their day. Um, can you tell us about this idea that the, this we get to learn more about different parts of their life cycle in the book. You have to be in some of them that you have to look sort of in a corner of the spread to be clever, to see what's happening with somebody that you met a few pages before. But with the bees, we get to have two different spreads that feature them. Um, can you share a bit with the listeners about some of the fascinating things about bees that are in the book? Uh, well, I mean, bees are
0: something that it's a, it's a group of insects that are really beloved um, and Uh, our government, you know, in the United States actually has put a lot of funding and support towards pollinators and bees we think of often as being a synonym for, for pollination. Um, And so featuring bees seemed like a, like a great choice. Um, But of course, when we look at an insect, we often only see it for a few seconds out of its day. And we might think, oh, that's what a bee does. We see it flying to a flower, but of course, you know, they have 24 hours in their day, just like we have 24 hours in our day. So kind of showing, uh, the variation in behavior is, is key. Um, a lot of the work that's been done on figuring out foraging behavior, which we learned a little bit about, or the waggle dance, which is um, a movement or a behavior that bees do, worker bees do, to signal to other worker bees where nectar resources might be in the environment and how far they are and what direction an individual would have to leave the hive to get to that flower um, patch um, a lot of that early work was done by one of the first black uh, entomologists uh charles turner so i am ha- kind of fascinated with how humans kind of came about figuring out what bees were doing um entering and exiting their hives as well as many others including um you know there was a lot of work that was done in the, the 50s and 60s on this um later on and so uh, i think that there's still a lot of uh Interesting behavior about bees that we don't necessarily uh, fully understand, uh, but being able to kind of capture the the highlights, you know, uh, of what they're doing and how they're provisioning, uh, the fact that they have a social structure, the fact that they're all you know close relatives as sisters. Um, that we're working with, a, working for a queen, um, all of those things are kind of like the highlights that we know about, that we know about bees. And getting people to be very invested in uh, bee behavior um, and how cool bees are, I think will only help, you know, humanity. Because, um, of course, we really want to try and uh, have bees, you know, whether that be um, cultured bees, like honeybees that we uh, used for agricultural systems or native bees, we really want them to th- to thrive uh, because pollination um, is something that, um, in the absence of which, many species would would fall.
1: You mentioned earlier that in urban life, uh, insects and bugs are thought of as pests. But one thing the book really does is show us the complex social life of the different insects who are introduced and the unique attributes they have. One part that was particularly fascinating was the part about the fireflies and the different light systems that they do that lets um, the other fireflies know also what species they are. Could you talk a bit about that? That was really fascinating. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's, it's actually very remarkable. And it's got a sad footnote, I would add, that of, of how humans might be impacting this. Um, but, you know, fireflies, there's many different... When I, when I describe these things, I, as I said, I, I often think of how I would describe it to my Nana. And my Nana would say, there's fireflies as if just one, as if there's one kind, but there's actually many, many kinds, just like there's more than one kind of mosquito and so on and so forth. So there's lots of different species of fireflies and sometimes they exist in sympatry, which means that they exist in the same environment. Um, And when you have multiple species in the same environment, um, often there have been over long periods of evolutionary time methods uh, that have evolved uh, that allow species to recognize amongst each other Um, and that prevents hybridization, that prevents a species from mating with the wrong species um, by accident. And so in Fireflies what's needed is that they use um, you know, this, this mechanism and in, internal, this internal mechanism that they have that allows them to produce light. Um, Lucifer is there allows them to produce light um, and they can flash this light in, in these patterns that are species specific. What is so neat, though, is that... Um, some females will actually learn the patterns of other species, or perhaps you know there's some innate um, hardwiring uh, that allows them to do this. We're not totally sure, uh, but they flash the pattern of, of a different species. A mate, hopeful mate, comes in, swoops in, and then they get eaten. Um, so it actually can be a method uh, to lure a prey item towards um, one of the towards the firefly itself, um, which is really neat. And the sad footnote is that. <laughs> For this communication system to really be effective and efficient, um, we need darkness. And so humans um, have done a pretty poor job at polluting the environment with light um, during the evening. Many of us keep lights shining on our house at all times or outdoor lights on. Um, And in particular, there's been work that's shown that lights that have kind of a bluish um, or, or really whitish blue uh, tone rather than a yellow tone are particularly hard for insects that fly at night to be able to navigate. Um, and so with this increase in over the last hundred years in, in light pollution, um, we think uh, the data seems to suggest that there's negative impacts on firefly populations. So I would hope that, you know, by, by emphasizing this kind of really neat behavior and this night flying insect, Um, that might encourage people to think once or twice about what they do in their own backyards and their own front yards and their neighborhoods um, in terms of the lighting and light pollution um, that is going on.
1: Another creature that you introduce us to is at noon. We see the march of the ants, and then we catch back up with them at 5 p.m. on the fungus farm. And we see a lot of the social and cooperative behavior of ants, as well as their hard work. And we learn about the use of pheromones in messaging. Can you teach us more about ants? Well,
0: ants are a family of Hymenoptera. Hymenoptera is an order of insects that includes bees, ants, and wasps. And one of the families, Formicidae, are the ants. Um, and there's lots of different kinds of ants. And the one, ones that we're featuring in there are leaf cutter ants. Um, and leafcutter ants are like little farmers. Um, so they actually will cut small pieces of leaves. If you've ever been... To areas um, of the world where there are leafcutter ants, uh, you've seen them kind of carry, they go in these long trails kind of carrying these piles. They'll sometimes deposit the little leaf cuttings, clippings in these little caches, or these little piles, these stockpiles. And eventually the leaves get taken into the, what they, they're actually called gardens, just like, you know, uh, like what humans might do. And there's a lot of analogies that people have made between ant farmers and, and humans. Um, but what's neat about their system is that uh, the leaves, themselves are not which what that which the colony is being fed on. Um, it's actually uh, the leaves are food for a fungus, and they're actually kind of rearing or growing the fungus, and the fungus is that which is used uh, to feed the colony. The fungus can get bacteria that can um, damage uh, the fungus garden. So ants actually also have antibiotics, <laughs> antipathogens uh, that they will kind of maintain. Uh, their little fungus gardens with. So it's a really neat system of very complex, um, complicated, um, multi-species interactions um, that take place, you know, often underground, sight unseen to humans. Um, And this is a really neat example um, of of kind of typical social insect behavior where they're able to do sophisticated um, behaviors with really just a small cluster of ganglia. They don't have a main brain. <laughs> they have kind of like a like clusters of ganglia um, and and pheromones and chemical pheromones. It, it allows them to to do this very sophisticated suite of, of behaviors with a little. I just love that. And there, are, I mean, we didn't feature this so much in in the book, but there are other um, ants that actually are herders. So they actually will herd mealy bugs, which is a type of hemiptera, um, that secrete a sugary substance. Um, and when queens go to start their own colonies, um, they actually will carry with her on her nuptial fight. She'll actually carry with her in her mandibles, a mealy bug that then they'll use, uh, to start their own herd of mealy bugs, um, which they raise like the way that humans might raise cattle. Um, so ants, ants do a lot of Uh, interesting behaviors that we as humans appreciate, because I think it does remind us of some of the behaviors that humans do.
1: You've talked about your Nana and about the time at the water. Um, And on the double spread on page 22 and 23, you feature super swimmers. Is this based on that that place you were talking about earlier that you spent so much time with, uh, with your Nana?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I have such fond memories of looking in the water, just laying face down on the dock and staring into the water or taking scoops of water and and, and sand and soil and seeing what crawled out of it. Um, and I think that as someone, I since I said he dragonflies and damselflies, um, you know, more than half of their life is spent in fresh water. Often for many of the insects whose juveniles or babies develop in fresh water, the juvenile stage is actually 75, 80% of their life. And their adult stage, the part that we see where they're flying around is just usually one hot summer. Um, and so there's, if the majority of your life is this aquatic stage, it seemed like we should learn more about it. You know, people should get to, uh, almost have their virtually (laughs) through this book, be able to peer into the water themselves um, and see what's happening. Um, And these freshwater insects are great indicators sometimes of of aquatic pollution. So we can use those as biomonitors. If you like to fish, which I love to, to go fishing and I spent a lot of time fishing as a kid. Um, many of the fly ties that people use for fly tying, for example, are modeled after, after these kind of spectacular swimmers, which are great, you know, a big important source of, of the diet of, of, many different types of fish. Um, so they are, there's a, a lot of different ways that, you uh, that animals move through water. And the same is true for the, for insects, you know, which are, which are just freshwater animals in, in water. Um, and so some move almost like a fish, Pesiform, we call it. Um, some are crawling in and amongst the detritus or the debris. Um, some burrow into the sand. Um, some, you know, cling to rocks and, and try and just hide out. Um, and so uh, I think just being able to highlight uh, the variety uh, that that exists in freshwater, sometimes um, overlooked, really (laughs) underappreciated, maybe even (laughs) Uh, that was really exciting. Plus, I think they look very cool. I think freshwater nymphs, I think insect nymphs, or larvae, as we sometimes call them, um, they just look very neat. I mean, many of them breathe through gills that are external uh, to their body. They look almost like little flaps of, of of something that either either was on the side of their body or coming out the back end of their abdomen. And dragonflies actually have internal gills, rectal pads, they call them, and they can suck water up into their bum (laughs) and then shoot the water out by expelling it very, very quickly. And it kind of jet is a form of jet propulsion that can allow the the dragonfly to move very, very quickly away from something, away from a predator, for example. Um, So that's neat. You don't hear about that every day. And so I thought that would be a neat Um, something to feature
1: and you let us know that some insects can breathe underwater and that the giant water bugs it's the male giant water bug who carries all the eggs yeah it is a
0: great example of um, of male paternal care Females lay their eggs on the back of the male giant water bug. The male giant water bug has to do push-ups basically in the water to aerate the eggs to make sure there's enough oxygen getting to all the eggs. So females actually choose from among their potential suitors, from among the potential mates, um, by looking at males doing these push-ups, <laughs> these kind of push-up contests underwater. Um, and then uh she chooses from amongst those males, um uh when she's, when she's deciding which male to, on which she's going to lay her eggs. And, uh, you know, it wasn't actually until, you know, the last, the last couple of decades that we really um, knew very much about the genetics of that. People wondered whether maybe there were sneaky males, um, you know, males that would mate with females and she might uh, use uh, some males' ingredients. <laughs> I'll just say, uh, to fertilize some of the eggs, and then the one who's carrying it uh, these eggs on his back and having to do these push-ups all the time may not have fathered all of the, the individuals on his back. But when people did genetic work, that doesn't seem to be the case. It does seem to be that the male that has all the eggs on its back is usually sired, you know, the majority of, of the, the progenies that are on his back, Um It's very neat. (laughs) It's very neat to see those in the water. It looks like it's basically like
1: the Manhattan skyline, but on their back. Even though it's a 48 page book, which to listeners might sound a bit short, it is packed full of even more than we have covered. Um, And we only have a few minutes left. So I trust that listeners will look at the book and cover what we have not. Um, we are speaking to you in your office at the American Museum of Natural History, which also has a graduate school there now?
0: Yeah, the Richard Gilder Graduate School. It's a PhD-granting institution. Um, and we also have you know students that come through other partner programs as well.
1: And so part of your work is teaching.
0: Yeah, so I'm a professor here. Uh, I teach graduate students. I have graduate students in my lab. I have um, students that work on dragonflies and damselflies, uh, termites, cockroaches, true bugs, uh which are these cool twisted wing parasites, and bees. Um, and we have labs here. So we have really excellent molecular facilities to do genetics and genomics. We have 23 million insect specimens or invertebrate specimens here in our collections, um, which is really an unparalleled resource. Um, of the last basically documenting insects uh, uh, from all corners of the world uh, for the last 150 years or so, um, as well as really neat facilities for microscopy. And we have a new exhibit, a new permanent exhibit that's going to be opening next month called the Insectarium Uh, It's a new building that they're building called the Gilder Center. Um, And the Insectarium is the first new permanent exhibit in about 50 years, I think, here at the museum. And it's all insects all the time. So there's a vivarium with live insects. There's a leafcutter ant colony. So people can come and see the leafcutter ants at work, hard at work with their fungus garden. Um, And then there are displays, um, interactive kiosks. Um, as well as a lot of pinned insects that are there on display, kind of highlighting uh, the different insects um, across all of the different orders of insects.
1: You're originally from Canada. What inspired you to come to New York for this job?
0: Well, I came to the United States first for graduate school, Uh, My father was American, Um, he was from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and so I have dual citizenship. So he always encouraged me to consider coming to the United States for school at some point. And so for graduate school, I came and did my PhD here. Um, And after that, I was a professor. I did a postdoc, actually, at the American Museum of Natural History for two years um, as an NSF postdoctoral fellow. And then I was a professor um, at Rutgers University for 10 years uh, in Newark, New Jersey, Um, And I really loved it. Uh, I really did. Uh, But then when um, I came to the American Museum, uh, this is an exciting time (laughs) in the lab. You know, really a great time to really focus on research collections and we call expeditionary research where we, you know, are doing field biology. Um, And so after, you know, being in the United States for as long as I have, I still consider myself to be, you know, a very proud Canadian. Um, But I do feel like this is this is home.
1: I know we only have a couple minutes left because you have one of your grad students coming for an appointment in a few minutes. Um, What's a misconception since you have listeners here and they're going to pay attention to news about insects at a time when they might? not normally, what's a misconception that you'd love to talk about? I think one thing that
0: is, that is tricky is that we have examples of invasive species like the spotted lanternfly. Um, you know, it's been, it was all over Manhattan last summer and people love to hate it, right? Because they are kind of a nuisance and they were present in huge numbers. And that gives people the impression that perhaps there's a lot of insects out there and maybe too many of them. When in fact, actually, when we look across the species of insects, we see that insects are in decline. In fact, the the rate of decline of insects is enough that um, it's steep enough that that we're very, very concerned. (laughs) So we're worried that we're losing species at a rate that is fast enough that it might lead to ultimately um, you know, the demise of, of, you know, the extinction of, of some species. Um, and some of those species we really don't want to lose because they have a really positive impact on on humanity and on our, on our own species' ability to survive. So I think that one thing people need to consider is that although there are still lots of mosquitoes <laughs> and lots of, you know, spotted lanternflies and, and bedbugs, um, in general, across insects, when we look across western, northern, southern, eastern hemisphere, um, what we see is that there is an alarming loss of insect biodiversity, and now is really the time for us to do every possible step that we could to conserve biodiversity, to make our own backyards and fire escapes friendly for insects, um, and to really understand that insects um, really shape the world uh, to be the way that it is, and in the absence of insects, we won't survive.
1: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
0: Well, I hope people, uh, you know, like it, learn to love insects uh, and learn to appreciate them. You know, less than uh, 10% of all of that 1.5 million uh, insect species, less than 10% are nuisance or even pest insects. Um, even the lowly cockroach, you know, 2% of cockroaches are pests, but the rest are not. Um And so hopefully people will learn uh, to appreciate insects and to realize that there's a lot of different kinds of roaches and of flies and of dragonflies. Um, And each one of them has been around for, in some cases, millions and millions of years before humans even came on the scene. Um, They're interesting in their own right, uh, but they're also interesting for the wonderful kind of ecosystem services that they do to make Earth the way that it is, The, the Earth that we know and
1: love. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Ware, and telling us about your work at the American Museum of Natural History and sharing with us about your book, A Day in the Life of Bugs. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.